All right, well, let's, uh, let's pray. Let's jump in. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you so much that we've received your very words. Uh, we thank you for the privilege of having been able to see it and listen to them read to us, uh, that we can hear the very words that you have given our world, given to us. And we pray now that as we reflect on uh, your words, that please you might use uh, those words by your Holy Spirit to stir us, uh, to change the way we see the world, to change the way we think, uh, to draw us closer to you, to help us understand the things of Christ, to help us be changed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, one of the things we need to fight for, uh, really fight for tooth and nail, which kind of sounds very aggressive, and uh, I, I think it's kind of like that. We need to really fight for the fact that um, Christianity and being a Christian is not just one thing in your life. Uh, we, we, we must fight against the community around us that keeps wanting to kind of just uh, push Christianity to be this uh, small thing that happens on the side while everyone else lives their life, uh, kind of marginalised. Let me put it positively though, we need to contend for the fact that Christianity is actually an all-of-life thing. It can't just be put off in the corner. What the Christian faith is talking about is something that impacts all of life, all of my life, all of our life, all of everybody's life, whether they're Christian or not. It's something that speaks to all of life for all of us. Um, now, now, what am I talking about here? Well, what I'm saying is that the thing, I want to keep saying this, the thing that we do together is actually come in touch with something that is far bigger, far deeper, far everything about our lives and our world around us. And the more we appreciate that, uh, the more we'll actually understand what it is to live in the world that we have. Now, how am I going to prove that, that the, um, the cause of Christ, the Christian faith is everything. How am I going to prove that? Well, tonight I'm going to do it by paying attention to a word in the Bible uh, and what that word means. Now, I've, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but over the last bunch of weeks, we've been going through a series of words. I don't know if it's going to come up for a series. Is it going to come up? Um, yeah, awesome. We've been going through this kind of what it is to be saved and we've been looking at various ideas of salvation, election, being chosen, uh, being born again, regenerated, uh, repentance and faith, uh, justified, uh, sanctified, glorified. We looked at adoption the other week too. We've been looking at a number of words that kind of capture what the Christian faith is and how to understand it. Tonight we're going to be looking at just one of those words, the word sanctified. Uh, second from the bottom there and we're going to spend some time uh, understanding it making sense of it uh, so some of you will be familiar with that word the word sanctified or sanctification uh, let me just give you a quick explanation of what it is sanctification is uh, a word that um, uh, kind of speaks about having been set apart for something uh, to be sanctified is to be set apart. It's to be set apart for God, uh, to be set apart outside of the world. It's to be set aside for Him. Uh, it's uh, the idea of holiness, to be holy, comes from this same idea, to be set apart for God. Now, the way we usually use it in our kind of common conversation, uh, well, if, whether you use it in your common conversation, but the way we use it if you're talking kind of as Christians is we think of it as sanctification is that process of growing as a Christian. Now, it's not always used like that in the Bible, uh, but we often use it like that in popular thought to talk about how we become more and more godly, how we grow as a Christian. Uh, there's a sense in which the idea of sanctification is that we have been made saints, actually. We've been set apart to God to be saints. There's no just 
In the Christian world, it was a great mistake of a denomination many years ago to think that some Christians were saints and the rest weren't. Well, if you've come to faith in Christ, you're, everyone is a saint. We've been set apart, sanctified. And our task in sanctification is to become more and more the saint that we already are, that we've been made by uh, the grace of God and the Lord Jesus. Now, what I'm saying is this, is that when you understand sanctification, it's actually saying something about the whole of human existence and our part in the whole of human existence. It really is uh, touching on very big things. So think with me about this. What is the whole of human existence about? What, what, what is going on in our world and humanity and what's happening with humanity? What's it all about? Well, let me take you all the way back to a very familiar story. Now, the problem of using the word story is it sounds like a fiction, but to a very familiar movement through history for humanity. Let me take you to the very beginning. Uh, at the very beginning, what the Bible teaches us is that the universe and all that exists didn't just happen. It wasn't just an accident. And actually, just on that, to imagine that something came from nothing, the kind of atheistic idea that there is nothing, it's just suddenly the universe popped into existence. To imagine something came from nothing takes more faith than to believe the Christian faith. Um, the Bible actually says that beyond creation is, is the uncreated, eternal power God, a personal being. And it's by His deliberate action that the universe came into existence. He created it from nothing. This God who is beyond all things and outside of all things uh, infused that creation, that universe, with the fact of relationship and the importance of relationship. Because the God who exists, who is transcendent and above all, is personal himself. He's not like the Star Wars force or um, like that kind of Eastern mystic idea that God is in everything. No, no, no. He's a transcendent personal God. And He created the universe for relationship. He created us for relationship with Himself. That is the beginning of the whole of existence, infused with this sense that relationships matter from God. But here's what happened. Humanity, each of us, weren't there, but we proved this to have been our decision as well. Humanity in our head, Adam and Eve, chose to reject that God, turn their back on that God in arrogance and pride, and by virtue of doing that, brought about the destruction of the universe that we live in. Caused it to break, to fracture. Now, they didn't have the power to destroy creation, but it was God's judgment upon them uh, that led to the breaking of the universe. We turned our back on the Creator, not as an accident, not as a slip-up. Uh, we decided that He didn't matter that much. We decided the One who made all things wasn't really that big a deal. We decided that what matters most is me and my life and life is to be about me and my happiness and everything's to be seen through what I want and how I want it and so we decided that was the case and we did all of that in our pride and our arrogance and our self-absorption and so we destroyed the heart of what the universe is about, relationship with its creator because we turned our back on him instead of living for him and God was no passive victim he judged our pride. He, uh, he came down upon our self-centred rejection of Him 
uh, not as some kind of, um, you know, Hollywood starlet that just had an overreaction, you know, just got angry. No, no, as a settled, thoughtful, righteous act of justice, God judged humanity. And in that judgment, he subjected everything to futility and fallenness. He caused everything to be, be built into decay and dysfunction and death. He brought these things as an act of judgment. And that actually explains the world. One of the things about the, one of the evidences of the truth of all of that is that when you actually look around the world that we live in, it makes sense. There's so much that looks good, there's so much that looks relationship, there's so much look, there must be something bigger, all of that's part of the sense of the world we're in and yet it looks broken. It's not as good as it could be. There is decay, there is frustration, futility and death. So it all makes sense of what the Bible teaches. But here's the thing, because of the God that we have, the goodness of God, He didn't just judge us, but He sets about saving And he comes to save his world and save people. But this idea of saving that he comes to achieve is not just a small partial thing. He comes to save us from the thing that destroyed us. What's the thing that destroyed our world? Sin. That thing that is rebellion, arrogance, pride turning our back on, rebelling against God, sin. He comes to destroy sin in us and he comes to do away with the judgment that's been put upon us because of our sin. He comes to put all things right. Now, this is the whole movement the Bible talks about and it's massive because it's not just, it's not just for Christians. Do you see? This, this movement is actually part of the universe we exist in that's moving towards this thing that God is working. Whether you have eyes to see it or not, it's there, it's real, it's happening. With the coming of the Lord Jesus, this is very obvious and evident. Now we're getting closer to our word sanctification. One more step to help us understand the word sanctification. You see, now, think with me about the purpose of our life. Given that whole account of what life's going, what's happening in the world we're living in. Think with me about our purpose and the purpose of our life. Have you ever heard someone say, perhaps in the midst of some difficulty that you're having... God has a a great purpose for your life. You may hear it in different contexts. I've often heard people say where someone's gone through a terrible tragedy and a Christian comes along and says, God's got a wonderful purpose for your life to bring comfort to them. Now when they say that, God's got a great purpose for your life, typically what they mean is that through all of this and in the midst of all of this, God will bring out something wonderful. You'll have a new relationship that gets established. Or you might get a new job. Or you might find yourself in a different part of the world where something wonderfully emerges. God's got a great purpose. So this idea of God having a purpose for us is really kind of tied to you might get a new job, you might get a new relationship, you might get a new place in the world. You might have something private and personal to you that God's going to do this wonderful thing. God's got a purpose. Now here's the deal. We're now coming to the text that we're going to look at tonight. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And all of this will help us, I trust, make sense of sanctification. Come with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now 1 Thessalonians is uh, towards the back of your Bible. Um, There's a whole bunch of T's, the books that start with T. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, 
Have you ever noticed that before? There we are. Glad I came to church tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's the verse, verse 3, that I want us to reflect on. You there? It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. There's that word, but now let me put it in context. The whole idea of God's will, it's God's will, is the thought that here's what God wants. That's what God's will. Here's what God wants for you. It's God's will. It's, this is the thing God wants for you. This is God's purpose for you. Here's God's great purpose for you. And in the original language, it actually, verse 3, goes like this. It says, for this is God's will. It's very emphatic. It's not that this is a thought about God's will. This is God's will. This is what God wants for you. This is His purpose for you. And His purpose for you is not what job you might have. Not what man, woman you marry, what relationship you have. That's not His purpose for you. His purpose is for you, your sanctification. Your sanctification. There is nothing here about what job you should have, although there is, I'll get to this in a moment, there's nothing here about where you live, whether you should buy that car or not buy that car, whether you should, whether you should go on that trip or not that trip, or whether you should do a year here, or, there's nothing about that. God says, I have a purpose for you, and this is my purpose for you, your sanctification. Now, what is it that you should be sanctified? To be sanctified, as we've already drawn attention to, it's that you should live a life that was actually the way God intended humanity to live their lives. You should live your life now no longer in rebellion to God, but set apart for God to be different to the world of rebellion around you, to be someone now who actually lives a holy life, a godly life, a life actually that is about pleasing our Creator, like we were made to do before we rebelled. God's purpose is to bring you back to the experience of pleasing Him, living under Him. Now, this is all very evident when you look at the first three verses, the first couple of verses of chapter 4. Come to verse 1. As you see, verse 3 is part of a whole section here, chapter 4, verse 1. As for the other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. The first uh, chapters... Uh, first three chapters have been instructions in what you need to do and how you need to act to please God. No longer be in rebellion against Him, but actually live it a life that pleases Him. And we've been instructing you in this order that you would please God. You see, that's what sanctification is. <laughs> because what happens is, let me take you through these verses. Um, we've instructed you in order that you might please God, as in fact you're already a living. But now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, to live a life more and more that pleases God. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is God's purpose for your life. That you should be sanctified. That you should live a life pleasing Him and no longer pleasing yourself. Living for Him and no longer living for yourself. That this whole purpose of God to rescue humanity back to the way He intended them. In fact, more glorious and beyond what He intended. But God's great purpose is now being achieved that we might be sanctified. 
Now, what follows at the uh, second half of verse 3 is something of what sanctification looks like in very practical terms. Do you see what it says there? It's God, this is God's will, that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That you should avoid sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. It's that exercise of sex and sexuality outside the bounds for which God intends it. You see, God intends sex, he made up the idea of sex, it was his creation, but he intended sex to be experienced within a certain relationship of a man and a woman in lifelong monogamous marriage. God's purpose with sex was in that context, because the power of sex is best placed within that context. And it's pleasing to him that it's exercised there. You know, we are not to exercise sex in some kind of rampant, uncontrolled way. Verse 4, we should actually learn to control our bodies in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God. We aren't to, verse 6, take advantage of our brother and sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sin. You see, God's purpose is your sanctification, that you live a holy life, His purpose is that you be different. Now, plug all of this in again to that great movement of history. Uh, God made us glorious as man and woman to be living for Him, under Him, pleasing Him. We, in our rebellion, walked away. And the rest of humanity is in that place. But God is at work in the universe to bring people back, uh, to, to rescue them, to be saved that they might again live sanctified lives, lives free from rebellion, sin, and able now to serve and please Him. There's the whole picture. Now, what I want to do with the rest of our time together is kind of drive that home with three statements and explain them. So this is just the introduction so far, all right? But what I want to do with this now is uh, take you through three statements that I think help us make a little bit more sense even still of what I've just said. Let me give you the first statement. God cares about everything in your life, all the details of your life. But He cares about this thing more than anything else, your sanctification. He cares about everything. He's sovereign over all the bits of your life. You're to bring all your concerns to Him in prayer. Whatever you're anxious about, bring it to him in prayer. He's concerned. But the danger is when you hear me say that, that God is concerned about all the things in your life, the danger is that you can hear me saying that he cares about all the details of your life in the same way that you care about all the details of your life. And he doesn't. You see, we live in a world which cares about the details as the big things of our life. When you live in a world that's got no hope beyond this world, that there's nothing beyond the grave, then where you live and what job you have and who you have relation is, is the big thing. It's everything. And Christians can adopt that kind of understanding of the world and bring it into their Christian life and think where I live and what house and what job and what relationship, these things matter more than anything else and I need to pray that God helps me know which one to... And we get obsessed about these things and think that I care about them, therefore God should care about them. Well, He does, but just not as much as you do. God cares about the details, but just not like we do. 
Let me take a exa- couple of examples for you to help you make sense of this. Take the issue of work. There are many people in our world, um, and I don't notice it as much amongst us, so this is a safe one for us, but there are lots of people in the world obsess about their career. You know, what job I should get, and they spend all of their schooling life ambitious to be this or that. Most of you don't care, you just want to get a job, whatever it is. But um, lots of people care about work. Um, Well, the Apostle Paul writes about the question of work a little bit later in this chapter. Come down to verse 11 of chapter 4. Make it your ambition, he says, be ambitious, but make it your ambition to live quiet lives. Now, it doesn't just mean live lives where you don't talk much. He means peaceful lives. And actually, he goes a little bit further and says, make it your ambition to live quiet lives. You should mind your own business, not be in everyone else's business. But here he comes to the issue of work. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. Work with your hands just as we told you. Now, I don't think he's just saying get a job that digs ditches or, you know, makes stuff with your hands. I think he's okay with the idea of working in an office as well. So working with your hands could be typing, right? Let's call it that. Um, But he's got a particular love of being a sparky, let's say, though, uh, Jacob. But, uh, you know, get a job, he says. Um, Don't be that person that bludges off society. Get a job, even a humble, whatever the job is, get a job. Verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. You see, here comes the Apostle Paul and he says, inspired by God, do you know what? The great purpose of God in your life is not the particular job. Whether you're an OT or a physio or a surgeon or or whatever, That's not God's great purpose for you. Don't fret. What God's great purpose is for you is that you just get a job, whatever it is, you earn money, you learn not to be dependent on anyone else. In fact, in in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says, uh, the thief should stop stealing and get a job so he's got money to give away to others. You should get a job so you've got money yourself, you're not dependent on others, you're not dependent on your parents, you're you're actually able to earn your own living and have enough to give away to others so that you can be generous to those in need. And let me just say, uh, uh, if you do marry and have kids, raising kids is a job, even though you don't earn money for it. Just put that out there. The Apostle Paul wants you to work and work in a way that wins the daily respect, that wins the respect of outsiders so that people see you as a worker. And brother and sister Christian, do not be the bludger at work. Don't be that person at work that's known for getting late and leaving early and doing as little as possible. Be that worker at work that actually um, demonstrates respect, respectability in the way you work, the working hard. Now this is what the Apostle Paul means by sanctification. What God wants for your life is not which particular job, but that whatever job you do, you do it well. You earn a living. You have enough to give away and serve others. You see what he's saying here? What matters is your sanctification, not whether you're a brain surgeon or what. Who cares? Whatever you are, you see, get a job. Now, there is something to be said about a particular job. We'll come to that in a moment. 
Let me take you into one that probably touches us a little bit more closely. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, marriage. Again, this is somewhat shocking in our culture. If you live in a world where this life's it and there's nothing to come, then whether you get married or not, it's massive. And who you might marry is massive. It's got to be my soulmate. It's got to be the one who completes me and fulfills me and makes my life amazing. And so you're trying to find the most perfect person. Well, the Apostle Paul, again, teaches on this topic and on marriage. It's quite shocking what he has to say. Let me try and take you through some of the thoughts that he has here. Um, verse 8, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for you to stay unmarried. Marriage is not the be-all and end-all. Now, why does he say it's good to be uh, unmarried? Well, he'll actually, he'll actually tell you all about it. Um, he, he comes down and uh, verse 29 uh, of verse 28, those who marry have to be concerned with all kinds of troubles in this life and I want to spare you that. What I mean, brothers and sisters, time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn and so on. Um, I'd like verse 32 to free you from concern. An unmarried man or woman is concerned about the Lord's affair. They can vote themselves wholeheartedly and fully to the Lord's concerns and how they please the Lord. But a married person, a married man, is concerned about the affairs of this world, how they can please their wife. His interests are divided. What, what helps shape his thinking about whether you should marry or not marry? It's not whether you'll be fulfilled. What concerns him is participating in the cause of Christ, working to serve the purposes of God, which are about seeking to save people from sin. That's what God's... It's your sanctification and your participation in these things. Now he does come back to come back to verse 8 and 9. He does say there's a reason why you should get married. Verse 9, if you can't control yourself, then you should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Better to be single, to devote yourself to the work of the gospel. But if you can't maintain a holy life, a sanctified life, a godly life with your body, then it is wise to marry, says Paul. Now, this is so unromantic. It's not about fulfilling you and having the soulmate. It's about being godly, being in a relational context where you're godly. Now, there's some wisdom that needs to be brought to this. Um, this is not just that any man who's struggling should just go and find himself a girl. Because, girl, if that's why he's coming to you, then you run 100 mile an hour. But what Paul is saying is if, is if you're in a relationship, he talks about this, if you're already in a relationship and you're struggling to maintain... And verse uh, 39, and she belongs to the Lord, then you ought to actually stop putting yourself in temptation and pursue marriage because being godly is what matters most, not finding a soulmate. Now, again, I'm not saying to rush out and just... Um, there's much to be learned about self-control and all the rest. The point Paul is making is that we're to think about marriage and singleness differently through the lens of sanctification, being godly and holy in all we do. There is further wisdom about who you should choose. I'm going to come back to that in a moment as well. But the Apostle Paul thinks about these things very, very differently. Know the value of your life and what matters. The key to your life is not which person 
but how you are in the relationship with that person. I think there's a very helpful uh, reflection by someone from America who said that every person marries the wrong person. Just effectively always saying when you wake up the next day after being married you go well what have I done how did I get this person you know um, I never happened to me but um <laughs> you know now it's a helpful little reflection because what it suggests is that the key to marriage is not finding the right person the key to marriage is being the right person the key to marriage is learning to be a husband who loves your wife whoever your wife whoever she is whether you've chosen the right one or not, the key to is love her, serve her, sacrifice yourself, be, that pleases God. Whether you find it rewarding and fulfilling is not the point, love and serve her. Wives, honour your husband, love and serve him, honour him, whoever he is, whoever you have now married. Now there are some challenges here, what if there's abuse, what if there's adult, there's all kinds of things, that need, there's complexities, yes. But in the general picture, what the Apostle Paul is saying, that what matters is not who you've married, but who you are as a married person and how you relate in marriage. What matters is your sanctification. It's a very profoundly different way of thinking about life than the world around us that thinks it's all about what job, what career, where I live, who I marry. But what Paul says, no, 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 no. What it's all about is your holiness, that you learn to please God in whatever relationships you're in. Does it make sense? Tempted to have a question time to see if we can make sure we've got it. First one is, God cares about all the details of your life. He cares about who you marry. But He cares so much more for your sanctification. I have met husbands and wives in very difficult marriages who have honoured the Lord Jesus by virtue of their godly, holy life within that. And they in eternity will be far more glorious than those who have pursued the romance of the perfect partner and left because it wasn't the perfect partner, left because it wasn't happy. Those other people will be shining in glory because they pleased the Lord in the way they related in marriage. What matters is your faithfulness and love and godliness to your husband or to your wife. Sanctification, that's God's purpose for you. Second, Sanctification is inseparable to the very act of God saving you. Sanctification is inseparable to the very act of God saving you. Sanctification, this growing as a Christian in godliness and holiness, is not secondary, it's not optional, it's not an add-on to being a Christian. It's not something that some Christians pursue and other Christians don't need to pursue. Sanctification is integral to the very purpose of God saving you. Your sanctification is why he saved you. His purpose is your sanctification. This is the very point of Jesus' death. He called you to faith that you might be rescued to be saved by his grace, that you might then give yourself to a life of living a life of pleasing Him. Let me show you a passage here, Titus chapter 2. Come back to the T's, come back to Titus chapter 2 and uh, I'll show you this worked out there. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared 
that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God appearing is, I think, a a way of summing up the coming of the Lord Jesus, his death and resurrection. Here's the grace of God that's coming to our world and it's coming to the world to offer salvation. Verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God in in the death of Jesus, his resurrection, his act to save sinners is about saving you to be Someone who says no to ungodliness, to to, to say no to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives because God's purpose for you is your sanctification. That's what he determines for you. And if you come down to verse 14, this Lord Jesus, our Saviour, great God and Saviour, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. God's purpose is your sanctification. The reason Jesus came to die for you was to bring you into a place where you might be justified, you might be right before God, you might have a a right standing all by His grace and gift that you might be adopted into His family by His grace, not by your works. All of that. So that you might now live a very different life. A life not in rebellion, but actually in in relationship with God, seeking to please Him every day. That is His very purpose. The work of Jesus was to pay for our sins, to save us from the penalty of sin. He paid so that we don't have to, by grace alone. But He did that so that He might then remake you into the image of His Son. Different people have used over the years different language to explain this and I like some of the different languages I'm going to share with you. Some people have used this language, they've said we've been saved from the penalty of sin by the death of Jesus for free. Not by works, by a gracious gift we've been saved from the penalty of sin so that we can be saved from the power of sin. The power of sin ongoingly in our life that we might be sanctified more and more so that the power of sin is stripped and stripped away from us, that we might say no more and more to rebellion and learn to love pleasing God day by day by day, say from the penalty and the power of sin. Others have used the language of full salvation, I like this too, Uh, people have suggested, uh, ancient writers have suggested that the Lord Jesus saves us from sin in its fullest sense He doesn't just save us from the penalty of sin that you can go to heaven. He saves you from the penalty of sin and the ongoing impact of sin in your life. That you might be free of sin in all its forms. Free of rebellion. That you might live a life that pleases God. Now the assumption in all of this is that this is God's good gift. That you might be saved from sin, its penalty and its power. The assumption here that this is God's good gift. You know, one of the challenges for us is that sanctification uh, is not a very attractive idea for many people. The idea of becoming holy is not very attractive. Uh, We, uh, a friend of mine, a man called Craig Dobby, who's now the pastor down at um, Grace Church, he used to pastor amongst us here for many years, a great friend. He, um, Craig said, he used to teach us at a Christian high school in Sydney. And every year he used to do this exercise, he'd get his class and he'd say, I want to do a word association with you, I'm going to give you a word and I want you to give me the first word that comes into your mind. Let's see if we can do this. He would say, okay, the word is holy, what's the first word that comes into your mind as a word associated with holiness? What do you think they said? Holy, 
starts with B. Oh, you're a wonderful group. <laughs> boring. Boring. Isn't that interesting? He said every year, same thing. Christian school, what do you expect? Every year they said the same thing. He said, I say holiness and they go boring. Now why is that? Why is being sanctified, why is being holy, why is being more glory, godly perceived as boring? I'm going to suggest to you for two reasons. Because of sin and Satan. It's the perversity of sin within us that thinks a life lived every day pleasing God, doing what He wants, would be a boring life. That's sin. It's how perverse we are. But it's also Satan who has done a job in our world making holiness look bad and unattractive. And what I want to suggest to you is the thing that Satan has done is he has made ungodliness, he has made uh, sexual immorality, he, he, he has made everything that displeases God attractive. He, 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 has, he has made this bait that looks wonderful and hidden the hook of sin. Because sin always has a hook. But Satan hides it behind the bait so that you are drawn to it, you want it, you take it and the hook grabs you. And Satan delights in that. He has done the task amongst our world again and again. You see, sin, when you live in rebellion to God, what do you gain from sin? Shame. Condemnation. Slavery. Slavery to self. Slavery to Satan, you gain death, you gain final eternal rejection. What do you gain from sin? But Satan has put so much bait around it, we keep taking it. Let me illustrate with sexual immorality. The idea of not having sex restrained in a, male, in a relationship between a man and a woman in marriage, the idea of not having it restrained but actually having it free to do with whoever I want, whenever I want, uh, on the, on whatever, the, the idea of having unrestrained, just express myself sexually, that idea is a very attractive idea today. And what have we gained from it? Perversion, destruction... Young men and women are enslaved to pornography. Our world is consumed by sexuality and the stupidity that's come from it. And young girls, older girls particularly, are being hurt and damaged by it all. It's, de it's destroying marriages. It's destroying families. It's destroying health. Our world has painted it as this wonderful freedom... But all it has done is created an incredible slavery with all the destruction that's come upon it. And God's good gift is your sanctification. God's good gift is that you might be spared that. That you might learn not to be like the pagans who are unrestrained in their lust. But that you might control your body and exercise sex and sex life within the proper bounds. After your marriage day with one partner your spouse for life and it's in that context that it flourishes and is good God's good gift is your sanctification do not be conned by the bait where the hook is hidden 
You know, it's hugely helpful here, I think, to see the person of Jesus in all of this. If you want the best picture of what the holy life looks like, then it's the man, Jesus, who lived the most extraordinary, full of life, life. He was a man who was full of strength and dignity and self-control. He was full of love and grace and kindness. He had the strength to stand against and stand for and help the weak. He had the power to actually be sacrificial and servant-hearted. Where did all of that come from? A life lived every day seeking to please his father. He said, my food is to do the will of my father. He lived a life like no other man has ever lived a life and that's what God wants for you, that you would be like Jesus more and more. You would grow up into the strength of a tree that is deep and strong and solid, that you would have a rich and full life, sanctified. That's God's purpose. You know, I met a man uh, many years ago who said to me he was happy just to be saved by the skin of his teeth. And what he meant by that was he was happy just to have come to Christianity, believed in Jesus and just do enough to make sure that he wasn't uh, uh, disastrous as a Christian. And I said, no, no, no. If that is your attitude about your Heavenly Father now, the family you've been adopted to, that you don't care about whether you please Him, you just want to be in, then you probably aren't in. You probably aren't saved. Because sanctification is inseparably tied to your conversion experience. If you're genuinely converted, you will have a new attitude where you now want to please God because God's purpose is your sanctification. He sent Jesus to die that you might be sanctified. Heart and soul. What is God's purpose for your life? That every day you might be more and more like Jesus. That you might grow up into Him who is your head. It's God's good gift. You see, the first point I wanted to make, that sanctification matters more than any other thing in your life. Second, sanctification is inseparable to you being saved. You are saved for it. And if you have no interest in sanctification, in pleasing God, then you have not yet come to the salvation that's in Jesus. But third, I want to say this. Sanctification includes a radical reorientation towards church and much quicker. It creates a radical reorientation towards church. Because sanctification is not a solo thing, it's a community thing. Sanctification is an us-together thing. It's not just you on your own thing. And church is where we come together to stir one another for sanctification. The Apostle Paul, you might remember, said it's better to stay unmarried that you might give yourself to the cause of Christ in helping others come to be sanctified. Helping others come to faith in Christ and helping them deepen their walk. Because what matters most is that you please your Heavenly Father in being about what He's about. And what He's been about from the very beginning is rescuing humanity from the stupidity, the horror, the dysfunction, the destruction of sin in their life, rebellion against Him. He comes in the person of the Lord Jesus to do that very thing, to save us. And He's about that in the world today. And He calls us to partner with Him in that. And church is the place where that happens. Church is the place where that happens. That you might give yourself more and more to this. That church might not just be one more thing in your life, but to please God, to grow in pleasing God, is to see what matters most to Him and the gathering of His people is what matters most to Him. That you might serve as you're able, might give yourself to others, encouraging others, seeking to encourage people to grow in their faith, walking alongside them through their ups and downs. Now, so many of you are doing this.
what you are doing, keep doing. Make it a lifetime habit to grow in your sanctification. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great purpose you have for our life that is so wonderful. Help us to be freed from Satan's deceits that we might see sanctification for the beautiful thing it is. That we might uh, give ourselves heart and soul again tonight to want to be sanctified, to want to become more like Christ. Please help us wake up each day with a hunger and thirst for righteousness. That we might um, grow into the full measure of the fullness of Christ. Please we pray let that be the case amongst us in Jesus' great name. Amen.